Good morning, everybody. Hey, I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FBC Pasadena. It's really good to see you all and to worship together. Uh, thank you for your voices as you've already gotten to sing together this morning. I get the privilege of introducing a good friend of mine, a new friend of mine. And uh, in this introduction, you'll sense the slight bit of pain in saying this is a friend of mine. Um, Harlan Redman is going to be our speaker and preacher today. And uh, so he's going to share with us some about his own life. And then he and I are going to have a conversation about some of the things he has shared and the ways he will connect that into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but he is, his current position is as the executive director and principal at the Harambe School and Ministries in Northwest Pasadena. Some of you are familiar with that group. If you are not, then you should learn about them because it's a brilliant organization and ministry founded by John Perkins, whose work I've gotten to follow for a while and did not know about this Pasadena connection until recently. The reason it's sad, though, that I'm friends with Harlan is he is the outgoing executive director because he is going to be taking a shift in his uh, focus and energy and going to go back into graduate school at Princeton Seminary. Uh, it seems as though they sort of have stolen you from Pasadena. Uh, and it's going to be a good season. I think you're, you're excited about this change in energy and pace. Uh, and we are going to be here still. We're not going to Princeton Seminary. So one of the things we can do is love Harambe Ministries and the incoming staff well as a way of loving our new friend Harlan. Uh, got two young kids married. Your wife is finishing up doctoral work at Fuller Seminary in clinical psychology. Is that right? Uh, and we're really glad that you're here to share with us. Um, would you come? Come read? Come read some scriptures? Share some stories? Yes. And... Uh, and these are your new friends. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, such a blessing to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I was expecting to hear at least 10 more songs before I got up. I didn't have my uh, order sheet with me, so bear with me this morning. Pastor Jay is like, okay, you're going to love this congregation. You want to speak for a few hours. They don't mind at all. <laughs> Breakfast be waiting in the foyer. <sighs> Let us read the scriptures this morning. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 38 to 47. And it reads... You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and toot for toot. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? 
are not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that. Um, when I first started to unpack this text, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be harder than I thought. <laughs> to love your enemies. Uh, anybody have enemies up in here? Some we're unaware of. Uh, some of us make our own enemies. We tend to live in a country where that's sort of a American pastime. Um, but part of what God, the work that God has been doing in my life in real time that I always like to share with people, and I'll start from a more lesser story that I'll get into, is when uh, we have disputes between each other, or grievances between each other. Well, you may be saying, well, Harlan, that's Christian, a Christian. You said your enemies. I said, well, if you've been around the block a few times, quickly friends become enemies. Uh, if you look at some of the turmoil that's going on in our country, uh, if you ask either side, they'll say we're both Christian. It adds a contradiction that is somewhat perplexing. So there was a friend of mine and I was been reaching out to, and you know, everybody has that friend in their life where they respond to your text when they want to. Don't look to the left or the right. And so this has went on, you know, maybe in a few weeks he'll respond back. So I'm like, man, something is really going on. You know, I learned of this new term they say happens in a church now. It's called ghosting. And, you know, one minute you have a Christian friend and then you never see him again for the rest of your life. So I was trying to make sure I wasn't being ghosted, you know, by my friend I cared about. And so after probably two years of just kind of playing phone tag and texting, he finally gives in and say, hey, let's meet at my job and I go over to the job and we're catching up on the last two years and I'm like, man, God, this is really going great. And he's walking me out to my car and right as I get to reach for the handle on my car door, he just unloads these grievances that he had uh, on me. And it was a very, you know, anybody been in a situation where they felt attacked, right? And it was a very vulnerable situation for me because I am about 6'2", 300 pounds, and he was about 5'7". I grew up in the night ward, so I won't go there. Uh, But in our American conditioning, we're trained to win, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and be like, it'll be an interesting day to lose at whatever. And I wasn't expecting this to happen between my friend and I, the two hours we had just spent together seemed to be going really, really great. But I guess he had been holding on to something for two years that I didn't even know. And I was really more hurt that I had hurt him in some way. But culturally inside of me, I was gearing up. I was gearing up to basically lash back, you know, in our mind, you know, when somebody have agreements against us and we feel like they're wrong and they misunderstood, you start going through that Rolodex and say, oh, I'm about to fire back at this guy. He doesn't know how wrong he is. And I have evidence to prove it. And something came over me that I can only explain as just the Holy Spirit supernaturally, uh, uh, I'm ready to charge up. And I can hear the voice of God say, Harlan, this is not how we win. 
And I began to say something to my friend that I had never uttered before in my life. It was the most vulnerable thing because as a guy of my stature, the last thing you want to do is seem soft. And as he began to tell me why I had let him down, disappointed him and hurt him, I responded and I said, you know what? I really feel loved right now that you would care enough to tell me the truth. And as I'm saying this, I'm like, internally, like, what am I doing? It felt weird for me. But I can hear God saying, you know, we, we, in this world that we're living in, if there's going to be progress, somebody has to take the hit. And Jesus saying, I took the hit for you. Why can't you do it for others? Now, I know in our American thinking, we'll say, well, Harley, I'm not trying to be somebody's doormat. But if you're being led by the spirit, you know exactly what God is asking of us to do. And in that moment, that period was my time. To take the hit because what I could have done has been another believer, another Christian perpetuating hurt. So it didn't matter whether or not his grievances were true or not. I had an opportunity to restore my brother if I truly saw him as my brother. And I did. And I really give credit to the Holy Spirit because let me tell you, that was not my first instinct. There's something about the way the whole thing flowed, maybe because I was on the curb in public. The Holy Spirit, I was more vulnerable there. But I took that opportunity to help my brother heal, to be restored. It wasn't about winning for me in that moment. It's a small little experience of being able to love. Like Christ has loved me. And we have even greater examples of that in history. Uh, you know, I think of Martin Luther King Jr. when I think about someone in recent history that chose to love his enemies. And even more so than to choose to love, to even practice how to love his enemies. And there's an interesting thing when I start reading the scripture and Jesus saying, turn the other cheek and go one mile, go two miles. It's starting to seem like Christ is packaging us to be this gift of love to our enemies. Like he was a gift to us who was once his enemies. And it's a vulnerable place to be used by God in such a way. But it's exactly what the world needs to bring about healing. And Dr. King displayed that, you know, so much, so many people see his legacy as a, you know, he, you got to protest in this way because King did it civilly and all these sort of things. But I think one of the things that we'll lose if we don't look closely is this reverend, Dr. Martin Luther King, trying his hardest to follow in the way of the cross. To love his enemies authentically like Christ is asking us to do in this passage. And when we're able to do that, it begins to expose the contradictions in the person that actually hates us. Because I often ask myself the question, did God send Martin Luther King to 
help African Americans get the right to vote? Or did he send or call King to uh, uh, help whites understand that they were enslaved by their own hatred? Which one is it? See, we had been around a block a few times. We were voting in the 1870s. God had been faithful to us. So I thought, did, did he send King really for white people? For the oppressor. That they were enslaved or oppressed. You know, when I think about the Jim Crow South, and one of the contradictions is if the color water fountain is for me and the, the white water fountain is for you, what happens when your water fountain breaks? You're not free to use mine. That's the contradiction. But in love, we're able to bring those things to the surface. You know, this this actually isn't making sense. We can be on the same team here. And I think King was basically saying, just like Christ, well, if it's meant for you to be free, then you're not going to take my life. I'm going to hand it over to you. This love. This, this, this love that can only be found at the cross. And then I started searching other examples of this love, this sacrificial love, this love that comes in a gift to, in order to uh, deliver our enemies from those things that possess them that are evil. And I thought about Dylan Roof in the Motherhood Emanuel Church, AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, white supremacist goes into a church Bible study, a sacred place. They welcome him with open arms. He sits there with them for an hour. And right as they're doing a benediction, heads bowed, eyes closed, he begins to open fire. Killing nine people in, in the sacred place while they're praying to God. And to hear the survivors, the victims' families talk about forgiveness and love. I said to myself, God, you know, this pales in comparison to me and my friend on the curve. How can someone, being a newly father, uh, forgive someone who can kill that way, who can display such evil that way. One of the victims said, uh, one of the survivors said to Dylan Roof, you know, I don't actually have any place in my heart for hatred. And that God loves you, so I love you. What a supernatural display of loving your enemies. And so then I thought, God, how do we even get to a place of being able to love that way? To be in such proximity to chaos and and hurt and pain. How do you even get to a place of loving your enemies in that way? 
And I thought about the purpose and the practice of the church. This is the place where we come to be strengthened. This is the place where we encourage each other to do the difficult things. Because originally when I started reading this text, I thought about just how close I was not to modeling this out. How far I had to go to be able to love. Some of you may have been driving here this morning and, and struggling loving your spouse on the way here. But the world is in such need of this love. And although it's at times interpreted as weakness, you got to ask yourself the strength that it takes for that church in Charleston, South Carolina, the strength that it takes for Martin Luther King to forsake all the rights that we cherish today to love his enemies. How do you get to that place? We have an opportunity in coming together to to work and practice, to be everything that God has purposed us to be so that we become that gift to individuals outside of these four walls to live life in this amazing love. We follow in the way of the cross. In James 1 and 9, it says, believers ought to uh, 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 pride themselves in humble circumstances. Uh, 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 It says, Take pride in humble circumstances because it's, it's a glorified honor and position. And I thought, who takes pride in humiliation? Who takes pride in that kind of chaos? Only those of us who know this love for ourselves. This love that died on a cross for us. We can come together, practice and train in order to spread that to other people. Now, I know some people may think that it'll happen by osmosis of just coming to church. (laughs) I'm a testament that it's not. I've raised Southern Baptists. I think we clock more hours in church than any other space. Doesn't make you more of a Christian, but it's actually how we apply ourselves In Luke, Jesus says, why do you say, Lord, Lord, yet you hear my words, but don't put them into practice. We are exactly what we practice as believers, as followers of Christ. But we have an opportunity, First Baptist Church, to make a commitment to one another, to the people in this room, to follow Christ. And then we're able to do greater things. What I love so much about uh, Christianity it says, for God so loved the world, and that's what I add to it, that he sent love. And then Jesus says, I'm leaving behind love and the Holy Spirit for us to do what? Love. Sounds passive, but I'm telling you, it's the most powerful force. Scripture says, love conquers all. And I think we all have yet to experience that from the collective. But the time is now. We can make that commitment to love. That we may do greater things. And so I asked uh, Pastor Jay to come up 
That was a short Presbyterian little segment. <laughs> kind of got heavy. I was like, let me back off a little bit. Let's bring somebody else up and talk for a minute. Yeah, you know. Do you want to chat? What you got, Pastor? Um, so one of the things Harlan and I talked about is uh, him being able to share his own experience, but then for he and I to have a conversation around, to reflect on what's been shared. And, and honestly, to the places where uh, this is the most difficult, where it hits, kind of hits the ground. So one of the things that this morning, we've been talking for a month or so now about what this Sunday would look like. And this morning when you got in, you rolled in, I said, how are you feeling? You said, I'm a little bit nervous. Not nervous because he's talking to people. You like to talk to people. We love to talk, talk to people, day, right? Man. It's not that. You got an extra hour? <laughs> right? And we, I've actually told people on the staff, like, when we need to stop talking, they're just going to wave at us. We're going to stop talking. And we're going we're to say a prayer. Uh, but only the staff, if you try to wave us off, we're going to ignore you. <laughs> um, but one of the things you said that struck me this morning is uh, that this passage had been pulling you into a place of honesty, but in the midst of journeying into that place of honesty was exposing you, uh, and that was causing some tension. And I feel that every time I think about enemies. Um, For me, I think one of the things I want to hold on to, and I want to ask you to push in a little bit on, is this idea of practice. So let me share just a little bit about what uh, I wrote down on my notes. It feels, when I think of enemies, I immediately think of like the worst person or group. And I'm like really good at that game, right? We could all start to hone in on, when you think of enemies, uh, don't answer. But we might start to sort of go to the arch nemesis of our existence. And it's often, at least for me, it's someone that is easy to hate from afar because my hatred does not seem to change the situation. Whereas if I hate uh, my brother or sister, someone in here, that hatred has a a very pernicious effect on the community. Uh, But what you're challenging me to wrestle with is this idea of loving the near enemy, the one that is in close proximity. The beauty of church, the beauty of a gathered community is partly so that we can practice these very difficult things with right. one another. Um, so tell me how that's worked or how it's not worked. And maybe I'll do the same. That sort of near enemy, whether that's, uh, whether that's staff you've worked with at Harambe or your neighbors that just cannot act right um, or fellow clergy that just can't figure out where God is leading us right now. What has that struggle been like for you, that kind of near enemy? Well, it's interesting when I originally had uh, this encounter with my friend, after sort of successfully passing that, it kind of encouraged me to reach out to other people. So I was kind of like, uh, my name is Earl. Like I'm calling folks up like, hey, haven't heard from you. Did I do something? You know, because if not, I'm kind of on fire right now. I'm ready to reconcile. <laughs> uh, and, and that's a different place to be. I, I think if we were to be honest when it says pray for those who persecute you, if we can, if we can be honest with one another, there's probably some people that you would think aren't worthy of my prayers, mm-hmm. aren't worthy of me, me getting on my knees for. And one of the things that I realized, um, in this work of reconciliation, uh, it's so important that it starts within, it starts at home. 
and then begin to spread. Uh, John Perkins, the founder of Harambe and a civil rights leader uh, known as the father of racial reconciliation. I look at his body of work and I look at so much work that we have to get done. I, I'm more trying to put things in the context of like, what have we really missed? Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that I thought of was the fact that so much of what we desire in our world today, peace, reconciliation, so on and so forth, it's not a part of our culture. It's not a part of our practice and what we do. And so how can, you know, when you think about whether it's black or white, uh, how can you not be good at loving folks who look like you and pass that up to look, try to love someone who's completely different from you? And I thought about those things. And so that practice internally and letting it spread uh, externally is, 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 I think, something that was missed. And even from the church in itself, like we don't, we don't do a good job in this country of loving each other. And then we're mad when we're not doing it abroad. It's just not a part of our culture. So here's a question for, for you all. And you don't have to answer, but you can. Um, let me look around and see who's all here. Um, <laughs> going to point somebody out. These beautiful uh, people. Maybe they uh, strand. One of the questions would be, uh, who in here has someone in their family, mm. someone they share blood with, who they are estranged from? Mm. Uh, again, you don't have to, but you could throw a hand up. And most of us would have some, would resonate with that central tension. Uh, now, my tendency when you, when you were talking is to see that as the impossible work. And to skip that part and move on to the, the real, like, glamorous love of enemies. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, when you shared the story of Mother Emanuel in South Carolina, uh, we all, do you know this story? Is this a familiar story? It's a terrible story. Yeah. And it sounds ludicrous yes. that those mothers, fathers, those, that community would say that they forgive. Um, but when we were talking about that story, it's... Born out of a practice of love. Uh, you don't accidentally right. happen upon love of enemies. It is not natural is the way you said it. Uh, and so it has to be born out of a practice. We're so, I don't know if you are, I imagine you are like pain averse. I'm pain averse. It's not a fun thing for me. Right. Um, and so often because that's how we're built, this idea of even moving close to someone who we would name as enemy is a painful experience, which for very natural reasons causes us to withdraw. But we are given opportunities in the midst of conflict all of the time to practice because there is going to come a time. You've been in these a lot. There's going to come a time where you are faced with an impossible act of love. And if you've not been practicing right. like what's going to happen uh, does that sound right you're on am it. i making stuff up here no you're on it i'm just trying to reflect on what you've given me um so yesterday i don't know what you what did you do yesterday that's a good question did you get to sleep i don't have the luxury of memory with a two-year-old and a four-month-old <laughs> i can hear them back there uh try to relax a little bit yeah. Um, but yeah, so. So a group of us, uh, we took a small group of folks, uh, where are you at, Zach? Zach Hoover, 
and uh, LA Voice and a lot of local clergy organized over the last week a gathering. It felt a bit like a prayer vigil and protest and uh, a sign of of uh, togetherness and belonging. And so a group of us, I don't know how many were in the final action, 700 or so folks, a lot of clergy around California, different groups who have been concerned with uh, immigrant and migrant families and the sort of trauma that they are experiencing. And so, so in these situations, it feels appropriate to appropriate, but insane to move toward the trauma. Mm. And part of what it feels like this passage and what you are sharing is how do we move close to trauma and pain and not contribute to it? But here's what happened yesterday. So a lot of what I do in these situations is listen, cause I'm learning from the leaders who are there, who've been in this kind of struggle for a while. Uh, and so I'm pretty quiet. Judah was with me, my 10 year old. And, uh, I spend a lot of time doing the sort of physical, can I bless this space in any way? Even if it's just to be quiet and put my hands out and push Jesus forward. Mm. Um, and at some point while we were out there praying and sharing, uh, folks who were working in the detention center were pulling into work and folks who were leaving, were, who were working there and were leaving were pulling out. We were pretty close to the entrance. And, and at some point, some group kind of spontaneously started shouting and chanting, shame, shame, shame. And then because groups do this, everyone started, and I felt, I don't know if you felt this way, but I felt the need to push harder in that moment. Mm. Um, it wasn't, we did the, the room and the, the energy did not flip because our leaders were well trained and they were well prepared. They had been practicing. Um, but there were folks there who had not been practicing. They just, we just sort of stepped into the trauma and were like, this will go great. I, I didn't need to practice loving people that are very difficult. And it's hard. And that language of pushing away, that the shame language, right, is I can't associate with you because what you are about is going to get all over me. Mm. And I think the beauty of, of what King was doing uh, is how do you move people toward trauma and pain and not contribute to it? So they would practice, right? You'd role play. You would become used to being treated as less than human and then knowing deep within yourself that God loves and affirms you as fully human. And then that's enough then to move into any other kinds of spaces. Um, but yeah, I feel it all the time, the temptation to pick up. So let me ask you this question as we, we think a little bit deeper. Uh, the other phrase that's been in my mind this last week and, and as you were sharing is you can't tear down the master's house with the master's tools. Mm-hmm. And so whatever the weapons of empire are, whatever Satan would wield to create chaos and pain and suffering, those cannot be our weapons. Right. But... Tell me, how, tell me how that has been hard for you. What do those weapons look like that you've wanted to pick up? Because the fight seems important enough to rush it along and not do the longer, harder work of, of love of neighbor and enemy. This is the difficult things about our faith to, to act and to be led by the spirit as opposed to our cultural conditioning that's uh, around us. And, and one of the things that I think about often uh, having my uh, kids back there, if anybody here saw the uh, movie Moana, I can't believe I'm breaking this up. Which movie is Moana? Moana is the Disney movie that was, uh, I'm not going to sing for you, Pastor. Please. 
You know you know the song. Well, Moana's always trying to run to the water. The ocean is calling her to, to do this work. But there's this two-minute clip where Moana sees this, like, beautiful shell by the water, and she's, she's walking to it, and, and this is going to make sense in a second. <laughs> and as you see this beautiful shell, so there's a lot of, like, symbolism in this film. She hears this turtle in distress. Now, this is baby Moana, so there's some symbolism in her being, you know, a toddler. And she sees this turtle in distress. There's these crows flying around trying to get to this baby turtle for, you know, have this baby turtle for lunch. And Moana goes to uh, almost like a banana tree leaf branch. It's pretty big. She breaks the branch off and she covers the turtle while escorting the turtle to the water. And the water represents like the turtle's life source. And Moana stopped what she was doing here. I'm like, the symbolism for me is this, this beautiful shell sort of symbolizes wealth, riches, all of those sort of things. But she stops and goes back to help someone in distress. And as believers, one of the things that you can get caught up in, like you were saying, being at the border, you can see the crows and automatically want to fight the crows. That's our cultural conditioning. But Moana just covers the turtle. And when I saw that, I said, oh my goodness. God, is that what believers are supposed to be doing? Because we've been covered by the blood of Christ. Who's out there that's not covered that needs covering? And if those are the children at the border, then so be it. But my objection isn't to fight on the right or the left, it's to cover these kids or whoever is distressed, the homeless, the incarcerated, whatever. Why? Because I've been covered by the blood of Christ. And so that two-minute clip, now I know everybody going to go watch it when you go home. That two-minute clip to me realizing, and, and, and you got to understand that the enemy doesn't have to kill you. I think the biggest challenge for the church today is that the enemy's greatest purpose is for us to look like a contradiction. <laughs> so he doesn't have to kill you, just kill your witness. And make you want to try and kill it. Right. And so through practice, getting back on subject, mm-hmm. it's how we become this one body covering those who need covering not to contradict. And so even in this passage of scripture, Jesus is talking to his disciples and explaining to them how they should live. And not only that, I'm about to model this for you. I'm going to go before you and show you exactly uh, how you should live. And that's what Wednesday or whatever Bible studies are for, small groups are for, coming to church on Sunday is encouraging one another that we may practice this work of being one so we can communicate effectively this love that had died for us on the cross. 
so thanks, Pastor Jay, for adding to the preaching of that sermon. Oof, Moana. So did you cry when you watched Moana? Don't lie. I, I cry every time I watch Moana, I cry. There's some mushy moments in there, you know. Uh, I, I hold back as much as I possibly some mushy can. mushy moments. This, yeah. They're devastating. Yeah. <laughs> it is a, it, well, it's a, it's the, the movie to me is an exercise in empathy, an empathic yes. listening and relationship. And so... I, some of you have not seen it, so I don't want to spoil it for you. Right. But that thread at the beginning carries forward to the end. And it'll, one of the things that allows that character to do is to then see the sort of arch nemesis of the film as neighbor. Right? And it's brilliant. That's when I cry every time. Like, fall over. After 200 times, I kind of... Don't. Know, I'm dehydrated. I'm dehydrated <laughs> after, after 200 times. And so, you know, give it a week or so. The other thing that I learned yesterday at the border... Uh, because part of where we spent time was at the detention center outside, and the other part was at the border wall itself, um, what's known as International Friendship Park. Uh, and this is the space where you can come to the gate, and if you've got family on the other side, you can speak to one another. You're not allowed to pass things through. It's a very intense space. Reminded me of the only other time I've been in that kind of atmosphere is at the border wall in Israel and Palestine. Mm. And it felt that kind of heaviness. Uh, but it was uh, it was not as sort of intense of a moment, and we got to spend our staff got to spend some time with uh, the officer who's working that gate and just listening and asking him questions. And uh, this is he taught me. I don't know if you, Camille, if you felt this, or, or Pastor Lindsay, if you felt this, Judah, you were there talking to him. Uh, his name or what was his last name? Via. Sevilla, uh, he shared with us how he has to practice every day keeping his heart soft mm. because the work he's doing is brutalizing and uh, to hold the tension of having certain orders that have been given to him, but also always trying to see the dignity of the people who are being brutalized by the system. Um, I spent a lot of my day yesterday praying for him. Uh, and trying to figure out what it's like to bless the folks who stand in those spaces in between. Uh, which again reminds me of the way the king talked about saving the soul of white America. Uh, because we're somehow all bound up together. Um, we have about five minutes. Uh, we could spend five minutes praying together. Um, is there anything else that this is pulling out for you? And maybe one of the questions I would ask you as you kind of think about your own life transitioning out of really you've been at the center of a lot of really difficult work in northwest Pasadena. But you're about to go into what's going to be in a lot of ways like a privileged enclave in Princeton Seminary and do a lot of deep learning. Uh, what do you imagine is going to continue on about the learning and work that you've done, especially around this work of reconciliation? How do you feel like this next step is just an extension of that? You know, uh, people ask, well, Harlan, why are you going to seminary? And, you know, Fuller's right down the street. Well, the short answer to that is uh, Princeton is free. But uh, <laughs> the longer, more spiritual, godly answer uh, is that I truly believe that Christianity can bring people together. And even as I say that, I'm sure the doubt filled the room. <laughs> Because that hasn't been our experience. Uh, but I think it's because of this shortcoming of really understanding this love that's been given to us and understanding that it's a journey 
uh, and it's not going to happen overnight. So I really feel like this idea of racial reconciliation, you know, there's a, I got friends who will say, you know, Harlan, you know, my kids, I'm not raising them to be racist. So when all of those other people die, racism will just disappear. Uh, it is funny. And you've heard that statement before, but that yeah. kind of dismisses the fact that we got to where we are today because of the work that people have done uh, for us to be able to sit in these spaces from many different walks of life. And so... It's time for another generation and people are continuing to do this work so that we have uh, this country that doesn't contradict itself from its diversity standpoint and for a nation that actually calls itself Christian. And so it's a lot of work to be done in, in that space. And so me wanting to go to school to learn more um, to see how we can get even closer in, in our lifetime to seeing that. So. One of the uh, things that I love about the work you've done and also just what you've given me in the, in the time we've known each other is a larger picture of what's happening in uh, the spiritual landscape of Pasadena and Los Angeles. Uh, it, it's, so, it's very tempting, for me at least in my role, to get really focused on these beautiful people here. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you give to churches, and you've at least given to me, I imagine it's to others too, is a broader picture of what's happening and how we are not, how we are connected to one another across congregations, synagogues, uh, faith action groups, uh, neighborhood schools. Because sometimes as, as leaders in a church, it can feel like a zero sum game. Mm. So like if, if, if we are blessed with new guests and new members, then someone else is, uh, losing them. And that we're, but what if there's, there's gotta be something bigger than that? And that's the, that's what you have continually given to me is this larger picture of the work we have to do. The other thing that I'm aware of though is the place where you've embedded your life, your family as well in, in Northwest Pasadena. That has been both geographically, uh, and in all kinds of really deeply meaningful and broken ways, a, a place of separation. Mm. Uh, whether that's, uh, the way that we, the schools we put our children in or the way that we draw boundary lines or where resources might go. And so how do we, as you think about the, the neighborhood that you're going to be entrusting to, to new people, how do we expand our imagination about who is our neighbor in our near context? This, at least this city of Pasadena. Um, just like anything that we want to make a part of the framework of who we are. We, we have to be intentional about it and we have to develop a framework where we can practice living in uh, that particular space. You know, when working for a nonprofit, uh, people come, people go, people serve and so on and so forth. And I, I'm always hearing, you know, stories of like, oh man, it felt so great to be able to serve and so on and so forth. Uh, and you know, America, we've, we've kind of done something to missions. Uh, uh, the way we sort of package it as more a part of uh, the culture than as uh, the work we're supposed to do in Christ. Um, part of that feeling that you have when you're serving someone else or doing something uh, for someone who doesn't look like you, um, that feeling is actually a space where we were actually supposed to exist. So it's not a space that you enter in and exit out of. You get what I'm saying? And so that's the part that we haven't really figured out. How do we dwell in that space? No, I just want to come feel good for a weekend (laughs) 
and then leave. Right. Right. Because right. that's the other option that you're sort of pushing against here. And that's sort of tourism. Ministry. And we've done that internationally. And the irony, though, is that when you think of it that way, you actually haven't given anything. You've received everything. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's something that we have to really address as a body of Christ and how we've sort of Americanized uh, missions and, and serving others and so on and so forth. And this, uh, you know, there are times in our faith where it's it's more of an inconvenience, it's more of a sacrifice to do certain things. But that's what God is calling us to. And the more we can become comfortable with being uncomfortable I think that whole proximity of being able to make an impact around you is going to be evident uh, um, sooner than later. Let me share one thing mm-hmm. that I would that I felt as a challenge and that you have extended to us that I want to say one more time to the congregation. And then if you would offer maybe one more final word and we're mm-hmm. going to pray together. Um, that language of loving the near enemy, uh, often when we think about this path, at least when I think about this passage, I go immediately to the place where it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And if I can prove that something is impossible, I don't have to try it. That is too far to jump across. So I'm not even going to give it a go because I don't want to injure my ankle. Uh, and so, but, but part of what you're asking me to do is imagine it as, as closer mm-hmm. and something that I have access to right now. So I'm going to ask that you all think about it in this space. Uh, do not imagine the hardest person to love. Imagine something that's more like a splinter right now. Uh, something that's doable. An act of forgiveness and reconciliation that is within the realm of possibility in the next day or week. The part about your story that I, I think the favorite, my favorite part is when you said, I'm on a, I'm on a reconciliation roll. Like I'm calling everybody. I'm going to do this thing. That's the, that is the wisdom that's only discovered in the practice of reconciling and forgiving is that it is not a depletable resource but somehow is like born out of an abundance but you have to test that Mm -hmm. and so i think what i'm asking everyone here to do is to test that yes if you would go find a place where you can move closer where you can let go of just a little bit of heat of anger and see what happens maybe just listen to your heart and then do the next hard thing and the next hard thing uh, someday I'm going to ask you or you're going to ask me, like, you've got to come with me to the impossible space, mm-hmm. to the impossible person to love. But I'm hopeful that between what was happening now and what happens in the future, we have done all of the, the smaller near enemy work. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be my challenge. What would be one last thing you'd want to say before we, we share a prayer? I think to, to really second that, I would love for uh, First Baptist Church Pasadena to... Um, create a framework to where we're encouraging each other to do the difficult things. So I would say, you know, when we talk about loving your enemies, there's somebody who probably come to mind, right? For some of you, a few people. Um, take the risk. Take the risk, take the hit, and, and share it with someone. Pastor Jay, love your emails. Uh, <laughs> you know, but... You could be, whether it's a text message, phone call, a letter, there's somebody you know that you're saying, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm willing to uh, love like Christ has loved me to reach out to someone and say, uh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Even if all the evidence is saying the opposite, that that other person should come to you. Uh, through Christ, we understand while we were yet sinners, he loved us. And so that grace has already been shown to us. How do we extend that 
uh, to others. And if you have the courage um, and feel led by the Spirit to do that with someone, um, I would challenge you to share that uh, with the pastoral team or anybody in the congregation. And I know they'll share back with me, but I think it all starts with this one step, this one risk that we take to start reconciling one to another. And God has given us all in Corinthians the the ministry of reconciliation. So there's so much that we understand about the Bible, but somehow we've come to the conclusion that it's optional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, so I encourage you guys to take that risk today or this week. The disciples were not all buddies. They were actually enemies. Jesus put that group together in that way. Mm. And, and somehow has put us together for some similar sort of journey toward the cross. Um, will you join me as we pray uh, a prayer of gratitude, but also of sending as uh, Harlan and his family head east uh, in the next month or so? Um, thank you for sharing with us. Yeah. Let's pray as the worship team comes back up. You don't get to leave yet. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray with you here. Oh, okay. uh, dear God, thank you for this, uh, this friendship. Uh, I grieve already of the distance that will exist. Uh, so I ask that you would keep us uh, bound together in this common work. Give all of us an expanded sense of love that might start uh, close to home and extend out. We know that you are not limited to this space, this congregation, and so you will go with Harlan and his family as you also lead us. Uh, We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thanks, brother. Thank you, Harlan and John G.